you know, in the fall, we're going to offer virtual regardless. We have found that some students and for their families, the scheduling and just the way that, um, you know, the way that schools work, maybe it's just better for them virtually. They like more independence. They like to challenge themselves. They like to have that independent study time or their family needs the flexibility. And so I think that we should wrap our mind around <laughs> the fact that some of these virtual things are here to stay. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. Before we get started with this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that the Elevation Scholarship is now open. Once again, we will be awarding five $2,000 scholarships to deserving English learners to support their higher education. The application period is open until May 14th, and you can go to elevationeducation.com slash ellcommunity for more details. There's a blog post pinned to the top of that page. Just remember that Elevation has two L's. You can also find the link in our show notes. Thanks so much, and good luck to all your students who are applying. What family engagement strategies are most effective in linguistically diverse communities? How might we empower families and siblings to help support EL student outcomes? How might recent policy changes impact schools with significant refugee or immigrant populations and inform the future of education as a whole? We discuss these questions and much more with Julie Allen, current principal and CEO of the International Community School. She has worked in education specifically serving low-income and historically oppressed communities across Metro Atlanta for over 10 years. She now works in Clarkston, which has been called the most diverse square mile in America. Ms. Allen believes that all students deserve an education that will allow them to live choice-filled lives, and she is committed to leading this charge in her current role. You can read her full bio in the blog version of this episode at elevationeducation.com slash ellcommunity. And as you'll hear in this episode, there is a lot that we can learn from schools like International Community. As always, thanks so much for listening to Highest Aspirations. Here's our conversation with Julie Allen. Julie Allen, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. You were another recommendation from our friend Connor Williams, who... Uh, who's done an incredible amount of work on English learners and dual language learners. And he, interestingly, he was like the first, he wasn't like, he was the first person who came on the podcast. So he continues to provide great guests. So appreciate him. I just wanted to give a nod to him before we, um, we get started. Absolutely. So um, you work in a really unique school that serves a very diverse part of our country that we've actually profiled before on highest aspirations. Um, and I don't usually start like this, but I think it's it's worthwhile for you to tell us a little bit about um, the International Community School um, and the communities you serve so that we can kind of have a foundation for the rest of our conversation. Sure. Yeah. So the International Community School was the, were the second oldest charter school in the state of Georgia. So we were started back in the very beginning of the charter movement. And the whole premise was to bring together local immigrant and refugee students. So over 50% of our students are ESOL students, and most of them come from Clarkston, which is a town just on the east side of Atlanta, um, which has been called the most diverse square mile in the country by the New York Times. So many, many, many international folks um, live and work there. And so we are really lucky that we have um, about 50% of our students that come from that particular um, space in Atlanta. And so the other 50% of our students are local uh, American born students. So we are a very unique population. We have over 33 languages represented in our students this year. And so we're really grateful for that. Um, so yeah, we have a really unique population that we get to work with every day. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing. And I love it that, you know, 50% are resale and then 50% are, um, like you said, sort of native um, speakers of, of English. And that just must, and we'll get into that, that must create such an interesting and unique environment, especially with 33 languages, I think you said, being represented. And mm -hmm. the community that I was referring to earlier that we've profiled before um, is Clarkston. We've talked mm -hmm. uh, to the folks at Refuge Coffee about that. And then we talked to a couple other school leaders in that area. And I just continue to come back to it because I think there's there's just so many examples um, of great things happening. Um, and it's it, it's something that isn't, I think, isn't necessarily just applicable to where you're working. It's applicable everywhere. And that's kind of what I want to hopefully people to take away from um, from this episode. So diving into that, um, with such a linguistically and culturally diverse population, I know that staying connected with families has been top of mind for you. And that's been top of mind for everyone. And there's been a nice spotlight kind of uh, shined on that piece, um, kind of because of the pandemic and the effects of it. So I want to start at the beginning. How have you gone about connecting with families, doing that sort of historically? And how has it evolved um, given the effects of the pandemic over the last year? And I guess, you know, what are you hoping to continue doing moving forward? Yeah, well, um, at ICS, we have a long history of having staff that represent the students that we serve. And so we have over 15 languages represented on staff. Seven of our eight top languages um, spoken by most of our families are represented on staff. And so that's something that we've always really prioritized in hiring and retaining um, our staff. We also, of course, do a lot of you know things that most schools do with um, emailing and texting, class dojo, um, weekly parent blasts. Um, and a lot of social media to communicate with folks, a lot of visuals um, in, in our social media and videos, those types of things. Um, but then during the pandemic, it really pushed us to really make sure that we were contacting every single family and making sure we knew exactly what they needed and how we could connect them to resources that they needed, especially when it first hit and we were kind of thrown into that um, crisis of virtual teaching and learning and a lot of folks lost jobs and things like that. So the things that we've really kind of innovated on during COVID are we've started to do live Zooms that have live translators on them. And so we've been able to use our staff that speak multiple languages and some of our translation partners to host parent university once a week. Um, and we have different topics based on what we hear from the teachers that parents are needing support with. So in the beginning of the year, it was a lot of technical support with the different right. programs and internet and things like that. Um, but as the years evolved, they've taken on kind of different um, topics that the parents need support with. So that's one thing that has gone really well and has been really popular because um, they don't have to come to the school anymore for that type of stuff. They can just hop on their computer and have a translated experience. Um, we also invested in a language line, which I know, um, you know, a lot of schools and different organizations use. They have over 200 languages. And so for, you know, when we have 33 languages, we're lucky enough that we have seven of our top eight. Um, but we have a lot more that maybe only one or two families speak. And so language line has been a way that we can reach them. We're also um, doing a lot of surveying of our families, like I know a lot of schools are right now. So every six weeks, we survey our families to see what they need, um, how we can support them, what feedback they have. And uh, those are translated into our top five languages. So that, um, and we do that through a voice memo. So rather than having to read the information that some of our families don't read in their first language, we have it recorded in a voice memo. They can actually just listen to the questions um, and respond in that way. 
Um, and then one thing I'm really excited about is we're piloting a phone tree. So this is a much less formal solution than maybe an email or something like that. Um, but we're seeing success in our Arabic community already, where basically um, I might have, you know, three or four families that I call initially. And these are families who are comfortable speaking English and kind of being that gateway to the rest of the Arabic community in our school. And then those families call three or four families that they know, and they're able to pass information down quicker um, and more um, with a better translation than sometimes yeah. we can do with a Google translation or a language line even, and they can say it in a way that the families understand, and then they can roll concerns back up to us if they hear, you know, something that isn't making sense or isn't get, getting communicated well. So we're piloting that right now with the Arabic community at ICS and are really excited about it and hope that that can open up just another layer of communication for our families, um, even though it is less formal, sometimes that works better. Yeah. You just, I think you just said it layers. Like it seems like you have so many layers of mm -hmm. ways to go about doing this, which I've heard from, from a lot of different people. You have the traditional sort of newsletters and email blasts and things. And then, you know, you mentioned the idea of visuals, just like we do with mm -hmm. our students having social media, um, you know, put out with, with, with visuals that folks can see and videos and things like that. Um, uh, I want to get to the phone tree in a second. I think that's a really interesting idea. That's probably replicable, maybe more replicable yes. than some of the other things you talked about. But um, I, I have one follow-up question. I, I've spoken with a few people about um, about these live Zoom events and even the events that are recorded and then people can take in later. And you mentioned that you have them with translators. And that's something that um, that has been really, really successful. And particularly, it was very successful at the beginning of this whole thing. It was like a silver lining where all oh, people didn't need to go to the school. I heard from lots of folks that in, in situations where we normally get 20 parents, we now got 100. Um, it sounds like you're seeing that kind of success. But I'm, I'm, all, I'm also hearing now that uh, in some cases, for some people, like the nostalgia of the Zoom thing might be wearing off a little bit or just like intense screen time that people have. So I'm, I'm wondering, one, if, if you've seen that um, in your with your families and those events, maybe like dropping in attendance. And if so, uh, what are you going about? What are you doing to kind of mitigate that? And, and if not, <laughs> I guess, are you thinking about that moving forward? I just asked you a lot of questions. I hope that was clear. No, that makes total sense. I think many of us feel Zoom fatigue, um, not just our families, you know, teachers, administrators, everyone in the corporate workplace, you know, we're all feeling Zoom fatigue. And so I think that we have seen a drop um, also in our survey numbers. We just saw a drop in people kind of right before the winter holiday. Um, folks were just tired. I think this is a really exhausting time. And so um, I think it just goes back to what are you really communicating? Is it really impactful? Is it really timely? Um, is it really necessary? Because then when we started rolling out our intent to return for students to come back in the building, now all of a sudden our participation is back up, mm. right? And so um, is what you're communicating really helpful and timely or are you just kind of doing it because you're in the routine? And so with parent universities, you know, if we're just doing them every week just to have them, then you're going to see participation drop down unless you're really asking parents, what do you need? And it's responsive and timely to those needs. So I think that's a pretty natural phenomenon, but we've just tried to counter it with um, accepting, you know, that that's kind of what happens when you get in the routine with something and trying to make sure the content we're delivering is timely and um, relevant so that people want to listen and tune in. Yeah. In many ways, like it's, uh, it's sort of marketing 101, right? I mean, you're basically, yeah. basically what you're doing, right? You're marketing your services. We don't like to use that term necessarily in education, but people get tired and then you look and you analyze the results. And I think that's what a lot of folks don't do. Either they don't analyze the results or they look at the results and they kind of don't take action on what needs to be done next. And you get into that routine and that muscle memory and you think you're doing the right thing, but you can also over-communicate. 
right? So it's interesting yes. that you mentioned that now that you're putting stuff out there that is really affects them and is really important that you're seeing those numbers creep up again. That's encouraging. Yeah, we're really excited um, with the numbers. And, I, and I'll say too, one thing that's been really successful that I didn't mention before that has had consistently 85% plus participation has been our supply pickups. So once every six weeks, we're in IB school, we have six week instructional units. So every six weeks, as we've moved through the year, we have a supply pickup and it's a carpool. So all the families get the date in advance, the homeroom teachers push it out. And all you really need to know is the day and time. And then you just drive through. So it's very simple communication. Um, and then you just drive through and the teachers get to see the students, you know, distance and through the car and with masks. And we get to give them their new supply kit for the next six weeks. And we have had over 85% participation of our entire school every single six weeks with that. And so that's another way if we need information, we could just give them a clipboard of mm -hmm. a piece of paper, a very simple questionnaire, and we could gather information very quickly from them that way too. So I think, again, that's something that really felt meaningful to them. You know, it yeah. felt very relevant, very exciting. They wanted to do it. And then of course we could get the communication we needed out of it as well. So. Yeah. Back to basics, right? Simple stuff, which is, which, yeah. which will, that kind of leads me to the, my next question, follow-up question about this is the phone, the phone tree. I mean, that's like a, that's like what, you know, I guess I'm sure I'm age, but that's how we used to do things when I was, just, you know, a student. My I remember my parents having phone trees and things, even like for like things like snow days and things like that. Like just mm -hmm. so it's just it was just leveraging the community it had nothing to do with language or anything. But that sounds really, really promising. And I guess for people who are listening, I know you're only piloting it. And I know you're kind of analyzing, which is a great, a great way to do it. But like what what would you recommend for people who are listening to this and, and saying, well, that sounds like a great idea. And it's like an organic way to do it. And it probably doesn't cost too much money. Like. What's the first step to take for that? Well, for us, it was creating the language phone trees, like seeing who speaks which language. Um, if you're in a school with just one or two languages, it may be simpler. You may be able to start with grade levels um, and say, you know, usually kindergarten families are the ones that want the most communication and have the closest touch with the school just due to the age and the needs of kindergarten kids. So you may want to start there. Um, I would say start small. Don't try to do it for your entire school at one time. It can get very overwhelming and there are lessons learned along the way. So just start with one language group or one grade level, maybe the youngest grade level since they're most involved and really um, build out your families. I don't know what kind of student information system people use, but ours, um, yeah, that really, because if, if your student information system is not tying families and siblings together, this is going to be very challenging and you're going to need Google Sheets um, and some real data, data analysis type of folks on your team who can help you put those family groups together. So once you have family groups together, um, then you can start and say, okay, who do we know? Who are the families that are very involved and engaged? Um, and start with them and see if they think it's a good idea and which of the other families on the list for kindergarten or for that language group, do they already know and would be willing to reach out and see if they think it's a good idea, right? And so then they kind of build it out in that way. Yeah, and you know, it strikes me and, and I guess like because of what we do at Elevation largely is just kind of get that data in a very manageable way so people can share it. Like I always start to think about well, in order to do that, if you don't have that data in a, in, a, in a way that you need it, the first thing that you need to do is go back and do sort of an audit, make sure that you have the right stuff, which takes a lot of time, but it's so important to have that in, in one place. So I'm not going to start to promote our products or anything like that, but I mean, I think it's important to have that data. If you don't have it, you can't. You can't make you that. Can't. Yeah, you can. And the time to do that is over the summer. So when people are re-enrolling or new families are enrolling, get that information yep. right off the bat so that you're not having to rebuild your student information system halfway through the year. Yeah, great advice. And that's coming up, uh, which is hard to yes, believe, but it it's is. timely. <laughs> um, it is. Hi, everyone. I'm Teddy Rice, president and co-founder of Elevation. The Highest Aspirations podcast 
It was created to keep you informed and inspired around the issues that matter most to the students you serve. We'd love the opportunity to talk with you about how we can help strengthen your EL program. Reach out to us anytime at info at elevationeducation.com to set up a time to chat. Now, back to highest aspirations. Okay, uh, you know, it, it seems like another really effective um, resource that you all have there is a family and community resource center. Um, and this is something that uh, a lot of districts have, particularly larger districts and those ones that have lots of English learners. Um, but for those who don't, or for those who sort of th are thinking about it, or for those who maybe want to revamp theirs or are looking for ideas, kind of three-part question here. How did you get that off the ground? What's its What is its primary purpose? Um, and, and how have you had to adapt it to the effects of um, you know, remote learning that year that we've all had to deal with. Yeah. Um, so one of the tenets of our five-year charter that got renewed in 2019 was to have more multiculturally, um, multicultural family programming. And so we knew Community Resource Center would be a way to offer that and also to take down some of the barriers that our students and families are facing that gets in the way of them having the best education they can. So really knowing the purpose of the center, I think is really important because otherwise, everybody wants to do everything they can for families, right? And there are lots of community partners. There are a lot of different directions you could get pulled. Um, and it can, again, just kind of get overwhelming. And then your communication is not clear. And then people don't want to come because they're confused about what you're doing. So really having a clear purpose. And for us, that was increasing multicultural family engagement and taking down any barriers that we could that were in the way of families helping their students get the best education they could. So that was kind of our purpose. And what we did to start out was have, um, this was pre-COVID, we had people come in person and we had round tables based around our major language groups with translators. And we asked a set of questions like, what's going really well at ICS? What do you need? What are the barriers you're facing? We had a list of things that community resource centers typically offer and asked which of these would be most helpful to you. And from there, we kind of got the trends. After those meetings, we pulled the trends together and we built our calendar for the year so that we weren't planning to do things that we thought were a good idea. I'm not a refugee or immigrant you know, I'm a, an American person. And so I, I might have images or make assumptions or stereotypes about what people need, but really to hear what they themselves would like to see. And then doing those things has been really helpful. Yeah. So the, just stopping you for a quick second there and sorry to interrupt, but like this, this is a lot of tenets of kind of design thinking here. People are aware mm -hmm. of that, like start with the problem. What are you trying to solve? Yes. Put together a mission, which would be the, um, I'm, I'm forgetting my design thinking skills, but that, you know, that's, that's the question, the design question that you're putting out there talk to people about it, which you did identifying trends, um, you know, empathize with with the people who really need it, uh, and then build, right? And then as you go along and build, you're probably iterating constantly. Yes. So um, I was just doing a little bit of design thinking, so that's in my head. Yeah, but it makes so much sense because that's how you backwards plan lessons. Exactly. Right? You don't just plan and hope they get it. You think, okay, well, where are they? Let's do a, a pre-assessment. Okay, let's do some formative along the way, right? You're really targeting the instruction. So I really see a parallel there. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's a slight concern that I have about, uh, and I'm really excited that there's going to be hopefully more funds available, and there already have been to kind of deal with some of the situations we're thinking about. But as a teacher myself for a long time, I I always ran into situations where I was like, we have all this money, we have to spend it now. What are we going to buy? And so yeah. I get a little. We'll talk more about like high level policy later, but um, but clearly you're doing the work of sort of thinking about what is the end result and and what what do we need to do, um. Okay, I interrupted you. I don't know if you had more on that 
uh, community center? No, that's kind of how we got the community center up and running and how we designed the programming and why we think it's effective because it's designed around the needs that our families actually said that they have. Um, in COVID, it has pivoted just to be a lot more kind of supporting families with virtual learning um, because that is such a learning curve for everyone, including myself. You know, um, a lot of us had never even been on Zoom before COVID hit. And so helping families get their laptops, get connected, all the different, you know, programs and devices, how to learn at home, how to communicate, all of that kind of stuff has taken just a lot of capacity in terms of our community resource center, um, calling families when kids aren't in class, you know, saying, hey, did something happen? How can we support you? Just really going above and beyond to try to make sure we can get as many kids into virtual learning as possible. It's kind of how the shift has happened. Right. Okay. So speaking about, speaking of remote learning and keeping people engaged, um, you know, we're all kind of like zooming into people's houses these days, homes. And uh, I don't know if I really like that term zooming in, but that's what people are using. Um, and because of that, or as a result of that, have you noticed um, a shift in kind of the dynamics of of family engagement? What have you learned from from the experience of that, like being in people's homes in a, in a, in, a, in a in one way or another? Um, and how might it help sort of strengthen your programs and thinking about other district's programs moving forward? Yeah, two big things. Um, one is we just, at ICS, we talk a lot about being grateful to be invited into people's homes um, when their cameras are on. And that's kind of how we phrase it rather than kind of requiring our compliance, because we know that it is very intimate to be, you know, invited into someone's home, especially if, you know, you're learning um, in a shared space in the home, you don't have your own kind of room, then, it, you know, that is a very kind of vulnerable moment for the family to invite you into their space. And so we're always just really grateful and appreciative that we get to do that. We had done home visits as part of our programming pre-COVID. And so yeah. um, this is just really an extension of that. We get to see the families. Um, one thing that's really struck me as I've been visiting classrooms and talking with teachers is just that sibling connection. I feel like we've really underestimated the sibling connection. So for example, um, I was in a classroom and one of, um, I was in a second grade classroom and the older sibling, uh, the teacher said, okay, it's your turn to read. You know, it was guided reading. And the sibling said, she can't read. And, you know, we called that sibling and we said, hey, you know, I, I understand that she may not read the way you do as a fourth or fifth grader, but she's learning to read. And when you say that, that's really discouraging. So can you actually, during this 30 minutes, it's our guided reading every day. It's our most important time of the day. We really need your help. Can you actually make sure she's on task? And can you encourage her to read? And can you actually read that book with her afterwards? And I think that in the normal school day, you know, the kids are in their different classes and we don't see the siblings interact like that. And so it turned into a really powerful moment where the sibling was able to then support the younger sibling with the reading. And I think that just going back into school in the future, we're going to really keep a close eye on those families and on the sibling groups and see how we can leverage the older siblings to support and encourage the younger ones. That's a great observation. And I've heard lots of people, uh, and, it, and maybe it's just kind of like a title thing, but I've heard lots of people say that, you know, we used to call it parent engagement and we're not calling it parent engagement. We're calling it family engagement mm -hmm. because of that, not only with the siblings, but with grandparents or other caretakers or whatever the case may be, people are realizing that the connections that they need to make, the parents are obviously extremely important, but in some cases they're just, they're not available. They're not, they're working, whatever the case may be. And I think, I think it's hard to kind of come to terms with the fact that in many cases you do have a sibling sort of taking care of another one and they may not be, they may not have the ability to really do, they definitely don't have the ability to do the work that an adult would do, but how can we leverage that and where's the balance? I mean, that's a tricky thing, right? In some ways. 
Absolutely. I mean, especially there's a lot of ethical implications involved with um, asking older students to translate for their families and things like that. But when it comes to kind of that nurturing big sister, big brother influence that we're all going to have regardless, right? We can either use it for for not great and say, hey, they can't read or we can use it for good and say, hey, you can do it. You know, and so I think there is an ethical line there, especially when you're talking about um, communication and communicating in different languages. It's very easy to over rely on children to do the work of adults. Um, So I I don't think that we should be doing that, but I do think that just leveraging those natural relationships, um, right? Using all the connections that we have to support the students is really beneficial. Yeah. Any support we can get. And I mean, there's obviously been, and rightfully so, a lot of focus on social emotional learning and make sure that's making sure that students have what they need in terms of not only, um, you know, food and shelter, but also somebody to support them emotionally. And certainly a sibling can um, can provide that in a in a sort of informal way that you're mentioning. So I'm glad we kind of get into that. And you actually transitioned nicely into what I'm going to talk about next, because the situation that you um, just described is a situation in which somebody, a, a student was reading and the sibling uh, eventually came around to hopefully help that that student read. And and I want to shift into this academics piece because you've you've done some, last time we talked, we were talking about some great work you've done with um, with assessing students one-to-one in reading specifically. So uh, I want to get into that. Um, sh- share a little bit about sort of what, what you're doing with that and what some of the challenges and successes are um, as you've rolled that out, which I think, I don't know if it happened during COVID or pre-COVID. Maybe you could let us know. It's like we have to like delineate now in the world we live in. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's either pre-COVID life or COVID life. Hopefully one day there will be a post-COVID life that we can talk about too. Yeah, yeah, any day now. Um, But yeah, so we actually started um, kind of this pilot of a guided reading approach, which is where everyone on the grade level intervenes for 30 minutes a day. And so we started that with our third grade team last year. They piloted it and saw um, a lot of success. And that was actually really led by our ESOL team. Our ESOL team is phenomenal. Huge shout out to them. Um, And they really led that charge. They thought that would be a really good thing to try uh, based on our data and based on some research they had done. So we tried it. And so then this year, going into this year, we said, okay, let's try it K-5. Well, with COVID and with virtual and with everything, we had some grade levels that had more success than others with it. Um, But the two grade levels that really had the success um, with intervening with the whole grade level, breaking kids into small groups based on their level. So I, as a teacher, might not have my students at guided reading time. I might have other students from across the grade level. And if I'm, you know, a gifted endorsed teacher, I have, you know, some of the students that are really accelerated. Or if I'm the ESOL teacher, maybe I work with the students who really need some below grade level support or something like that. Um, And they saw between 22 to 27% gains between the beginning of the year and the middle of the year this year, whereas the rest of our grade levels saw between nine to 15% gains in reading. And that was assessed one-on-one. So we did, um, just like you and I are doing on a Zoom right now, uh, one-on-one reading assessments with every single child in the building, all hands on deck, our ESOL team, our homeroom teachers, uh, teaching assistants, we all got that done uh, beginning, middle, and we'll do it at the end of the year. And so that was really so critical. And I'm so grateful for the ESOL team for leading that charge and figuring out how that works online, um, because it does look very different than sitting right next to a child and kind of doing a running record in that way. But that has really informed our instruction and led to the gains that we've seen, even amidst, you know, with the pandemic and so many changes this year. Yeah. Do you envision a world in which um, <laughs> this post mysterious post COVID world, uh, in which you would still continue doing these uh, these one to one assessments, or I think you're calling them assessments? Absolutely, um, you have to. Yeah, we have yeah. to. It's it's just a core tenet of the school now. Yeah, absolutely. But would you do them? Would you do them online as well? Do you think like that would be that would work? Like even when everybody's in school, just to open up the time, both for teachers and for students. 
Yeah, and as we start transitioning back into hybrid, we know we'll have students in the building and virtual, but we are going to try to keep that 30-minute guided reading block the same for everyone, whether you're at home or at school, so we can maintain those virtual guided reading groups so that you can get that daily small group instruction because it is just so much more impactful than once a week or you know a couple times a week or something like that. Yeah, that's great. I I, I worry sometimes that we're going to abandon all of the things that that didn't that didn't work or or that or I'm sorry that that we that we weren't used to before, you know, we'll go back to muscle memory. We got to do everything in school now, but like, there's just so many things that we can do, learn from this that I think will be useful. Obviously the best situation is to get students back face-to-face as much as possible, which you all are doing pretty soon, right? Which is exciting. Yes. Yes. Starting next week, we have students coming in. So it's exciting. And I think that, I think, you know, I can speak for myself and I know some counties in Atlanta, we're already saying, you know, in the fall, we're going to offer virtual regardless. We have found that some students and for their families, the scheduling and just the way that, um, you know, the way that schools work, maybe it's just better for them virtually. They like more independence. They like to challenge themselves. They like to have that independent study time or their family needs the flexibility. And so I think that we should wrap our mind around (laughs) the fact that some of these virtual things are here to stay. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, you're expressing it in a way that I've heard a few people express it in a few people that I really respect, by the way, saying, uh, uh, you know, that we need to be thinking about those students. It's certainly not the majority, but there are those students who are uh, successful in this situation. And so how do we keep that open and and teachers as well? You know, I mean, I think that we could look at the whole. So how can we uh, better utilize um, the programs that we have and the resources that we have? which probably is a conversation for another time. So I'm going to leave that there. Um, part two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Part two. I love it. Good. You already booked yourself. Fantastic. Um, okay. So I, I I kind of teased a little earlier the idea of like high-level policy. What, things are changing. There's been new administration. Um, I was talking a little bit earlier about the funding that's available for people and my sort of worry uh, as, as someone who is a teacher and worked maybe in a building that wasn't very well organized. And it was like, we have all this money. You have two days. Tell us what you need. And it led to poor right. decisions. So I guess my question is, um, you know, how, do, how is your school community number one sort of reacting to the Biden administration so far? Um, and are there any glimpses of what the future might look like for your school and others like it? And I said, sort of like to wrap it all up. I mean, what are your hopes and dreams for the future with this change and with other changes we have moving forward? It's a really interesting time for sure. And for a variety of reasons. Definitely. Yeah. There've been a number of really exciting things that have happened just in the past few months of the Biden administration. Um, The support for DACA folks is just really exciting. Um, Our community really benefits from that. Um, Repealing the ban from Muslim, predominantly Muslim countries has sent a very strong message um, to many of our families, you know, who've been just um, living in a lot of fear, you know, and so now they feel a sense of relief with that. Um, Also, one thing that's really going to impact the school, which goes to kind of the dreams, is that um, the Biden administration has said that they're going to quadruple the amount of refugees that are allowed into the United States this year and hopefully double it again the following year, which is just really exciting because, um, you know, when when there are those types of federal policies in place, the number of refugees coming into Clarkston can increase. Um, we can see our school continue to grow. We can continue to build those partnerships. And um, one thing that I is always on my mind as a school leader um, who is doing, you know, school improvement work is I do not want the school to gentrify. I do not want to lose that commitment to our ESOL students, to our super diverse population and to really educating local immigrant and refugee students all side by side. Um, And as the school improves, you know, the 
the more affluent, the whiter, the more privileged folks hear about us and they want to come. And so we are lucky that we're able to wait our lottery because of our charter. And so we wait it for our ESOL students, but we need the students in Clarkson and in Stone Mountain. We need, we need the families here to be able to serve them. And so I'm really excited to potentially see in the next couple of years, more refugee families allowed into the United States, more in Clarkston um, to make it an even more amazing place than it already is. And then for them to come to ICS and join our, our beloved community. Yeah, that's great. That's so extremely important. And we've talked about that mentioning kind of full circle. Connor, again, we talked about that with him, you know, about the dual language programs way back three years ago uh, uh, about, you know, how those programs are sort of at risk for gentrification um, and privilege. And, yes. and for for you to not only have uh, an eye toward that and understand that that is, a, that is a risk, but then to have the policy and the changes in place that are going to allow you to get the people that you need, that you want to serve along with others. I mean, it's just such a it's a delicate balance, but it's such a beautiful thing. And again, mission-driven, the policies kind of uh, support your mission. It's going to make it a lot easier. And the other thing that I'll say that's obvious is just, just to have people be able to breathe a sigh of relief and for mm -hmm. them to let their guard down a little bit. And I mean, that, that's just such a huge piece. You're not going to learn if you're afraid, right? Um, and yeah. it, it takes a whole family. It takes a community um, to get these these kids to, to achieve what we, what we hope for them. Um, all, all kids, whether or not, you know, they're, they're, they're refugees are coming from a different place or, or they, they're, they're native to your community. And I think I'll just add to that. We Please. are an IB school. And so our whole point is to help students become global citizens. And so to talk with kids about, you know, the insurrection we saw in January and the election and kind of how democracy works and how that perseveres through difficult times and how you may not always win the election on your side, but how, you know, in the end, this is an ongoing process that goes back and forth and we have wins and losses and we have to just advocate and we have to talk with our elected officials and teaching them about democracy and how to be a global citizen. Um, in real life, right? So we've been able to use a lot of these lessons um, and inspire them to get involved and be active. Right. Awesome. Well, I, we just scratched the surface of a few, I mean, I, our focus I think was on um, on family engagement and sort of how that works and, and a little bit on, on some academics, especially the reading that you're doing, but there's so many pieces here, I think that folks can take and learn from. I mean, I'm thinking off the top of my head, you know, the idea of the phone tree, that's a that's a replicable situation. The one-to-one -one reading, that's replicable, especially given the world that we have now with Zoom and the capability of technology. And there's a lot of other pieces as well. So um, so that's that's amazing. As we wrap up, I have two more uh, questions for you that I, that I ask everyone. Um, the first one is, um, is there a book or other resource that's, um, that's influenced you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share with listeners? Yeah, I'm a big fan of Elena Aguilar's work. Um, so her Art of Coaching book um, came to me at a time in my career when I was just transitioning into leadership. And it really has helped me both personally and professionally. Um, you know, she provides a lot of kind of um, coaching stems and ways to pivot between being a directive and a facilitative leader and questioner. And that's been really helpful for me, um, you know, in my work and also in my marriage and in my relationships. And it's just really helped me. And all of her stuff is really rooted in educational equity. Um, she's come out with a new book about emotional resilience and educators, which I think is so incredibly timely. Um, it came out before the pandemic. So really recommend all her, her resources. And she's definitely changed, changed my life. Awesome. We'll link to that. And it's always the books that can, that, that bridge that gap between personal and professional. You mentioned your, your professional, your marriage, or that's, that's always, those are always the good ones. You can apply them yes. to lots of different, different areas of your life. Um, okay. So if people want to learn more about uh, what you're doing, we kind of just hopefully have inspired people uh, to take the next step. And if they want to take the next step and learn more about you or contact you, how'd they go about doing that? 
Sure, yeah. So you can always visit our website at icsgeorgia.org. You can also follow us on, on social media. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, ICS Georgia, and Georgia's all spelled out. Um, you could follow us on LinkedIn. We post articles on there. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, any of those ways. Um, all of our website, our email addresses are on the website. So you can find any, any administrator or staff member there. If you have questions or want to follow up, I'm happy to support. Great. Well, thanks so much, Julie. This has been really um, inspiring. And I just love profiling um, folks from, from your area and the work that you're doing. Because as I said at the beginning, kind of coming full circle here, you're working in, uh, you're, and I know you, you you believe and you're right that you're incredibly lucky to work where you work. Um, but there's just there's or not but and there's just so much that we can learn um, from communities like yours. And and it's not just communities that are the same as yours, but any community um, can take resources uh, from from you and kind of replicate them. And hopefully, listeners were able to at least hear about one or two that they can kind of move forward with. So with that, really appreciate your time and thanks for all the great work you're doing. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.